It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. And thank you, Nick and team, for leading us in the absence of Draith, our home worship leader. He's off this weekend with his wife, Deanne, uh, hoping they're having a great time and looking forward to seeing them back. But appreciate you guys leading us uh, in the meantime into the presence of God. As Jordan mentioned earlier, we're continuing our series in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, so I'd like to invite you to turn your Bibles there. Uh, primarily, we're going to be looking at Ezekiel chapters 47 and 48 this morning. Those are the last two chapters in the Bible because this is the final message of this sort of seven-series overview that we have been doing in this Old Testament book. While you're turning there, in preparation for what we're going to look at this morning, we're going to be talking about um, the impact that a long-term vision can make on short-term endurance. That's what the Old Testament, the New Testament, the book of Ezekiel is all about. I experienced this personally in a very dramatic way a few years ago. Uh, there were several people from our church, many of whom are still in this room, who got together to run what was called the Northwest Passage. It's kind of like the hood to coast where you get 12 people that do a 200-mile relay, although this one was up in Washington State. So you basically run like three different times in like 36 hours and you get no sleep and like no sane human being does this, but a whole bunch of people actually pay money to do it. So off we went uh, to have a good time. I remember two things in particular about the last leg that I ran. Uh, you're assigned to run three legs, and mine totaled about 16 miles or something, not all at once, uh, but in a short period of time. The last one was the longest, which I'm like, well, what genius figured that one out, right? <laughs> it was going to be like seven miles, um, and the last four were like two miles of steady grinding uphill. After sleep deprivation and running two times, I'm like, this is insane. And then it was ending with two steady miles of downhill, which I was really not looking forward to because you're running on pavement and when your body's already sore and tired, just pounding downhill is like, please. But so I was all psyched up for this like, you know, last leg and off we go. And we finally get to the place where the uphill starts. And um, I was pleasantly surprised in that I actually felt pretty good. That's a relative comment at this point. I actually felt awful, but I felt better than I thought I would feel as I'm sort of chugging up this hill, and I'm passing a few people, which was awesome. Now, when you do a race like this, it's not really competitive with the other teams. It's kind of like an everybody's in it together sort of thing. You know, you pass somebody, and they're like, hey, good job, keep going. And you're like, yeah, you too, keep it up. You know, it's really sort of fun, uh, but I passed a few people. Uh, I should point out at this point that by the end of the time, I had passed 17 people total in my three legs and only been passed three times for a net score of 14 points, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> it's not competitive. I just thought you should know that. But I came out in the positive on that. Um, and so I'm, I'm actually having fun. I passed a few people going up this hill, and some of them look like they're pretty buff and pretty strong. And I'm like, hey, good job, good job. <laughs> I'm the man, you know? And then I hear these, like, footsteps behind me. And I'm, I'm going up this hill, and I'm like, I think somebody else is passing people back there, too. I'm not going to get passed. I'm not going to get past. So I kind of pick it up a little bit, although there's not much left in the tank to pick it up with. And then the footsteps get a little closer and a little closer. And for like two miles up this hill, they're just getting closer and closer. And pretty soon I can just hear these footsteps right behind me. I'm like, oh, some guy's just about to pass me. Some probably like super lanky, ultra marathon, you know, Superman is just going to pass me. And eventually right toward the top of the hill, the footsteps are right next to me. And this guy's just getting ready about to, to pass me. And so I turn to make eye contact and she says... Good job, keep going. <laughs> yeah, you too. Good luck. I'm okay with this, in case you wanted to know. 
in my defense, she was half my age, okay? I'm like in my early 40s or something. She's probably in her 20s. She's like young and healthy, and I'm obviously less of either of those things <laughs> at this point than I once was. My age was coming into full flower right there in front of me. Um, sometimes I tell you, reality needs to work on its bedside manner. Are you with me? Like, slap in the face. Thank you very much. And I'm like, I should chase her down this hill. And I'm like, who are you kidding? I'm done. You know, I just, so boom, she goes off. That was one of the three. So I went from plus 15 to plus 14, but I still finished in the positive. That was the first thing I remember was the blow to my pride. Fortunately, the last thing I remember about the race was much more positive. Um, two miles of downhill, now the exchange point where I was gonna end was right on the shores of Puget Sound, and as I came over that hill and, and some of the trees started to thin out, I caught my first glimpse of just blue water. And I was like, oh, I'm almost there. I mean, like mentally I knew I was almost there, but when you see it, it's like, yes, and as I got further down this hill and just you know, every fiber of your body is screaming, what are you doing, you moron? Running is like part of the curse. You're not supposed to do this on purpose. I'm not made for this. But you see the end in sight, and it's like, I'm gonna make it. I'm fine. I've been training for this for weeks. Our team's all psyching it. We're gonna make it. I'm almost done. And when I finally finished that, I had a few minutes after I kind of caught my breath a little bit and my heart rate came down where I'm just standing on the shores of the water next to Puget Sound and it's just this beautiful bright sunny morning and blue sky and this gentle breeze is coming off the water and I just stood there and let the breeze hit me and it was just the most exhilarating, awesome feeling. It's like I finally made it. Seeing the end goal can keep us in a hard race, whether it's going the way we want to or not. And that's what the book of Ezekiel is all about. Uh, as we close out this Old Testament book, the, the, the last part of this book is just dominated by a vision that the prophet Ezekiel received of a future end times temple, which was a very sort of Old Testament Israelite thing, wherein God would return and be with his people again because he had left the physical, literal temple back at the beginning of the book. Today is actually going to be part two of a journey we started last week. So if you weren't here from last week, we're jumping right into the middle of a story we hit pause on last Sunday, and so it's going to feel a little herky-jerky. We'll do our best to kind of catch you up. But what we mentioned back then, uh, last Sunday, is maybe the best way to understand what to do with this large temple vision, because different people sort of understand it different ways, and there's kind of some debates. And so rather than getting into those debates, our approach is just to say, what does the Bible do with these chapters. And let's just understand what God is trying to communicate. And so we've been on a journey of the temple from the beginning of the Bible to the end. Our journey has six stops along the way, and we took four of those stops last week. We're going to do the final two this morning. Initially, uh, and the key question that's guiding us through that journey is, where is the presence of God? Because that's what a temple was back then. It was a building where God's presence was. And so at every stop along the journey, the guiding kind of controlling question for us has been, where is the presence of God? Initially, we saw that the, God's presence was right there on the earth uh, with man in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden, unfiltered, totally joyful. God was with man and it was awesome. That's the way it was meant to be. Secondly, we took a stop uh, in, and saw in the book of Exodus and saw that God's presence after mankind sinned is now in a building, a temple. This is where the temple starts to come into play. 
the physical structure that houses the presence of God. And so God's presence is still with his people, but it's sort of veiled and layered, and there's a distance between holy God and sinful people. Thirdly, we saw in the book of Ezekiel last week that by now, in this point in history, about 600 BC, God's presence is gone. He leaves the temple, but he resides in a promise, this promise of a new temple in the future. God says, I will return to you guys, and I will be with you as my people. And then lastly, we saw maybe the most surprising thing of all. We landed in John chapter 2 where Jesus, 600 years after Ezekiel is running around receiving this vision, Jesus says, the temple is no longer a building. The temple is my body. The presence of God is in Jesus Christ. He is God made human flesh. And so his physical body literally housed the presence of God. He was the temple. A temple isn't a building anymore. It's a surprising turn of events, but this is the Bible's message. And we're going to pick that up today. Because you see, the Bible is addressing the questions that come from Ezekiel's temple vision. He saw this wonderful future temple, um, and God was going to return to it. And so the question on, on his mind and on the minds of his contemporaries were, when is this going to happen? When is God going to do this? That's a, that's a great promise. But when and how will this experience of being with God happen again? When will this temple vision be fulfilled Well, that first answer was in the person of Jesus. God comes in human flesh. But here's the interesting thing. As surprising as it is and as amazing as it is, and we just sort of dwelt there in worship and received the Lord's Supper last week, it was a sweet and awesome time. As amazing as it is, that's not the end of the story, and it's not the end of the temple journey. Because after all, Jesus' body died on the cross, and then it rose again from the dead, and then it left because he left. He returned to heaven. So where does that leave us? Are we like the people back in Ezekiel's day? God's presence is just gone. He's far away from us somehow and we can't get to him. Actually, no. And so what we're going to see in our final two stops today is where is the temple right now? And then secondly, where will it be for all eternity? That's where the Bible's going to take us. After Jesus ascended back into heaven, uh, you read the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit descends on Christians to take up permanent residence in the life of every Christian for the first time ever on the day of Pentecost, an amazing transformation of how God interacts with his people. And then we see the gospel spread and churches spring up all over the Roman Empire, the Mediterranean world at that point and even beyond. And then as the New Testament continues on, you get all of these instructions to the, uh, those churches about how they are to live in light of who Jesus is. And we're going to start this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. We will actually bounce back to the book of Ezekiel in a moment, but we're going to continue our journey from last week. And so if you've got kind of a finger or a bookmark left in the book of Ezekiel chapter 47... You can jump over to the New Testament and we get to the book of Ephesians. This is one particular church in a very large and well-known city, the city of Ephesus in the first century. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter. He's instructing these spirit-filled believers who they are in Christ. And he starts in chapter 2, verse 11. We're going to begin here in verse 20 in just a moment. But just to set a little context, he begins in verse 11 saying, the normal lines that used to divide people no longer matter when you become a Christian because when the Spirit becomes part of who you are, when the Holy Spirit moves into you, it changes who you are. And so you're no longer divided, for example, by ethics ethnic lines. And so he's talking to them as Jewish and non-Jewish Christians. And he's saying, since we are both reconciled to God in the same way through the blood of Jesus, we are now also reconciled to one another. We are one family. We are one household. That's where we pick it up in verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 2. 
So then you, referring to you all together, uh, non-Jewish people, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, with those that have historically been God's people, and members of the household of God. So he's using the word household there like a family, but then in a, in, without missing a beat, in the same breath, he switches the analogy, and this is what I want us to see. We're not only a household, but a house. Verse 20 built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, what's being built on a foundation? The family that he just talked about. He says, when you're a Christian, you are not only part of the same family with other Christians, but in a very real way, we are all like a building God is building on a foundation. But this is no ordinary building. It's a special building. Read on. Verse 21, in whom, that's referring to Jesus, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy, what? Say it out loud for me, church, a holy temple. Temple? Where did that word come from? We haven't been talking about temples. There's a whole bunch of non-Jewish people in this church that have never gone to the Jewish temple. It seems to come out of left field, but it's not coming out of left field at all. God is saying this has always been the plan. He is building us into a holy temple in the Lord. And to make sure we get the message in verse 22, in him, that is in Jesus Christ, you, plural, an entire church congregation like us right now are in the act of being built together into a dwelling place for God by the power of his own Holy Spirit. We are being built into a dwelling place of God. We are a temple. A temple is where God dwells. The temple is no longer a building. We already saw that. It's the body of Jesus. But now we get yet another, perhaps surprising wrinkle to the story as the Bible continues to develop its message of redemption. The temple is not even just limited to the body of Jesus, which left us after his resurrection. The temple is now all Christians collectively. The temple is now all Christians gathered together collectively. And by the way, if you're familiar with the New Testament, this isn't really that much of a surprise when you think about it. Because Jesus said, uh, the temple is my body. And throughout the New Testament, church communities together, congregations are called the body of Christ, members together of his body. So since Jesus' body is the temple, and since Jesus' body is also the church, it's not really surprising to run into a passage like this where the Bible says, so the church is also the temple. It's all one in the same. This is intense. This is exciting and intense because it confronts our individualistic, just me and Jesus way of approaching our faith in Christ that we so often fall into in our modern American context. This means a couple of things. At the very least, it means that we, uh, when genuinely saved people who have the spirit of God himself within them gather together, we create a distinctive kind of community. It means that churches like ours right here, right now, are temples in a very real sense. It's not just a, a metaphor or an idea. It's like God's presence is literally dwelling where his people are gathered as the church. Not in the building that houses us. There's nothing sanctified or special about the church building in and of itself. That's just where we meet. The church is not its building. The church is its, its members. It's God's people gathered together. And when God says that happens, his presence is with us in a way that 
somebody who does not know God can come here and experience something qualitatively different that points them to the person and work of Christ. God's presence is now in his gathered people. So our key question, as you continue to follow this journey of the temple through the Bible, where is the presence of God? It's very clear. God's presence is in his gathered people. We call those churches. Churches. When God's people come together, he says this right now, what's happening in this room itself is the temple of God. Not the room is the temple. What's happening in the room is now the temple that is God's presence dwells with his gathered people. This implies several things. First of all, it implies that we're connected in ways that maybe sometimes we're not encouraged to think about as strongly in this culture. It might mean that we don't really go to church. That, that might not be the best way to describe a Christian's commitment to his or her local congregation. What church do you go to? I go to Harvest. I go to Calvary, I go to Sunrise, I go to Beaverton Foursquare. That's the language we use, and I understand it, but that may not really be the best way to describe it. I mean, that's the language we use to describe where we get our groceries and where we get our dental care. I go to this dentist or that dentist. Or where we get our exercise. I go to this gym or that gym. But, you know, in those contexts, um, there's really no... um, implicit assumption of connectedness with anybody else. When you, know, when you go to the gym, for example, you, you go when it works for you, right? You go when it makes sense with your, with your schedule in a way that makes sense. Um, you skip when it's not convenient. Ah, something came up, got to work late, family in out of town, I just won't go. And by the way, when you are there, you don't really have any deep connection to other people who are there at the same time, beyond just common courtesy, you know, wipe down your gross, sweaty machine, that's nice for the person coming behind you, you know, and put away your weights or whatever, I mean, just common courtesy, but other than that, you don't really have any obligation to them, because the assumption of going somewhere is that, you know, our actions, first of all, are really none of anybody else's business. I mean, as long as I'm not bothering you or doing anything that's really obstructing you, then what I'm doing really isn't any of your business. And secondly, it also assumes that our actions don't really have any impact on other people. It doesn't affect everybody else. I'm doing my thing, they're doing their thing, and we're totally inert with respect to one another. It just doesn't really matter. And that may be true of the gym. I think it largely is. But nothing could be further from what Christ, our King, is saying is true in his church. We prioritize being here in readiness and in expectation because we recognize that something bigger than us is happening here and you don't want to leave a hole in the wall of God's temple. If I'm not there, there's a hole in the wall and people are going to, who wants to go to a building that's full of holes? The rain and the wind get in, right? There's something happening there and I'm connected to it and others that are making it happen as God's presence dwells with his gathered people. So it certainly implies, first of all, that that we're connected in some very strong and deep ways that that are difficult. I I confess myself, this is easier to preach than for me to think about. I constantly grind on this as kind of an individualistic-minded American, but this is what the Bible is telling us. We are connected in some ways that might be deeper than we initially assume is or should be true when we come to a church. It also potentially implies that we should show up with the expectation that God is going to show up. 
Like that seems to be a direct implication of this idea that God's presence is in his gathered people. That means when we come and gather in church, like there's something distinctively different driven by God himself that is happening here that doesn't happen when I'm just out and about meeting with other people. The expectation that God would show up since his presence is in his gathered people, that seems to suggest that we should be ready. We should be expecting God to show up here. Now, sometimes that's difficult to do because in this culture, and particularly in our community, we are so driven and so fast-paced. We've got so many activities for our families, and we've got such demanding employers, some of us, that put so many pressures on our time. We're running in so many hundred directions that a lot of us feel like, man, I'm lucky I even made it this morning. You may have stumbled in this morning. You're thinking like, I barely had time to even remember the directions and the way to church. Like, it's lucky I'm even here What do you mean think ahead about expecting God to show up? It's a challenge in this culture, but it could mean a lot of things. For example, expecting God to show up might mean one way of expecting him to show up would be to take the scripture passage that's going to be preached on that morning and read it ahead of time. We always print upcoming scripture passages in the bulletin for you so that you can do just that. I don't know if you ever take advantage of that reading it ahead of time because you see the Bible as God's word and you expect him to show up and say something. So the more familiar I am with it, the more ready I am to listen. You see, a consumer Christian, when we think as as individualistic consumers, we're more likely to see a sermon on a Sunday morning as the product of a preacher, um, the paid deliverer of goods and services. That might mean we come without much forethought. We may not even have any idea what's going to be preached on this morning. But this is my church, and so I'm going, and I'm going to see. And so we go, and we see, we receive what's offered, and we evaluate. Was that helpful? Was that encouraging? Was that a little too long and boring? Did I get anything out of that? Was that one of his better sermons? Was that one of his worst sermons? You know, whatever. And then, of course, that allows us, in some cases, to shop around for the best and the most preferred provider, because there are a number of them, even here in the church-less Pacific Northwest. That's thinking like a consumer. But on the other hand, uh, I don't know what you call it, brick Christian like you're a brick in the wall of God's temple be a brick I don't know I'm, I'm struggled with like what the alternative is if I'm thinking like God is uh, God's gathered people are a temple my mindset is different like I'm, I'm going to church and so I expect that God is going to speak and so reading ahead and getting familiar with the text comes out of the expectation that I think God is going to show us wonderful things from his word regardless of the manifold weaknesses of the preacher this particular one has many of which I'm well aware but God doesn't speak primarily through me. I'm just the delivery boy. He speaks through his word, so I want to hear him. I expect to hear something from God. Expecting God to show up might mean um, praying on Sunday morning before you come to church. I threw this one in here for myself personally. I'm just going to share it with you uh, because often I don't pray before a service starts and I catch myself going like, what's going on? Like, this is game time for me. This is my job. This is my world. So here we are at church on Sunday. I've got 500 things I'm thinking about and juggling in my mind. And it's so easy to just dive right into doing church without ever personally interacting with God. But what if you had to pray before you came to church? Maybe you should pull into the parking lot, you know, if you're sitting there by yourself or if you've got a spouse or especially if you've got kids in the car. And it's like, like, how cool would it be if it was like, you know, you shut off the engine and a mom or dad just says, hang on, wait a second, before the doors fly open and everybody just scatters to their places. We're going to take a second and we're going to pray because God is about to show up here and he may have something for us. So, so let's pray that we're going to hear it and receive it. And you know what? He might actually have us here for somebody else's purpose because we're connected to other people. 
So kids, let's pray that if God wants to use you in the life of somebody else, you know, that we'll see that and we'll be available for him. And you pray, and then you go into church. It's a simple thing, but it's a total shift of mindset. Expecting God to show up might mean reading ahead, praying ahead, and, and, and it might mean singing and participating in the activities of the worship service with heart and mind fully engaged. You see, consumer Christians are very good at putting a relatively thin veneer of sometimes sanctimonious spiritual language over what really amount to our preferences at the end of the day. I'm just not being fed there. Man, I'm ready to worship God, but I just can't worship with that. It sounds so deep and spiritual, but it's evaluating the experience based on where I feel I'm at. A temple Christian, to be a brick, or whatever analogy we're going with, might look a little bit different. It might mean that we seize on words and that focus the heart and the mind on God and sing his praises from the heart because he is an audience of one and we are the choir singing to him for him and for his glory and his pleasure. Regardless of whether we're thrilled about the particular number being sung at the time, it's a different mindset. I mean, could you imagine buying tickets for a holiday concert, like the Portland Singing Christmas Tree or something like that? You know, I've seen the pictures of that stage. I've not actually gone to that concert, but I've seen the pictures. It's all like these risers, and they've got it decorated like a Christmas tree, and all these people get up there, and they're singing this incredible stuff. And could you imagine, like, halfway through the performance, 30 people just, like, walk off the risers, and everybody else is still standing there, and they start the next number, and you're like, there's not enough altos. What, where did those people go? And like, oh, those, three, th- those 30 people don't like these next two songs. They'll be back, though, when they like them. And you'd be like, wait a minute. <laughs> I paid to hear you sing. You stand up there, and you sing, right? I wonder how God feels if we're just disengaging because we don't like it. Who are we singing for? Expecting that God is showing up to be glorified. By the way, let me just mention, real quick, sidelight, I'm not suggesting that like, there's never room for churches to do better with any of these items, teaching and praying and singing. I actually just had several conversations just this week with members of our church family where they're giving us input about how we can do what we do on Sunday mornings better. And those are actually rich and good discussions. I love having those conversations. There's a, there's a place for that. It's a good and healthy thing. That's just not what we're talking about this morning. I'm just trying to focus this on like, what's the mindset when I walk in the doors and pull in the parking lot? I'm expecting God to show up. So we're connected. We come expecting God to show up. And maybe one more implication of God's uh, presence being in his gathered people is that we come to serve. We come to serve others. That is the expectation that God will not only show up in us or for us, but perhaps through us to somebody else because that's what a temple is. It's the place where people go to encounter God's presence and hear from his truth and experience his grace. And so if God comes to us and we are the temple, they should be able to hear God's truth and experience his grace. It's about asking God to show himself not just to us, but also through us as a core part of a temple. And this is not natural way for us individualistic, consumer-minded Americans to think. But I get so encouraged when I see people in this church doing that. I've had almost a half a dozen experiences of that just this week, and I think I only saw them because I was thinking about it due to this service. They're kind of going on all the time. But they're happening all over the place. Um, Just a couple of weeks ago, I'm uh, standing there and um, talking to a long-term Harvest member, and he's taken a younger guy under his wing, 
just kind of spending time with him, you know, just discipling him, um, communicating the gospel with him, helping make sure he understands who God is. And, and clearly this had been going on for some time. I just found out about it like a little more than a week ago. As far as I know, nobody asked him to do that. I didn't ask him to do it, but he's just doing it. Just, I'm gonna invest some of my life in you. I'm gonna go out of my way to make sure that you have an opportunity to experience Jesus. That's, that's being a temple. Not long after that, I was in a worship service here just a couple of weeks ago. We're singing a song and I'm looking across the room and I see somebody that I've never seen before. I'm thinking, they're probably brand new to our church. I want to try to get over and make a point to say hi once the church service is over. I wasn't able to get over there right away, but by the time I was able to get over to them, they're already engaged in conversation with another couple who are members of our church. And I talked to them afterwards and the guy was telling me, yeah, you know, we, we saw them sitting kind of in the general area where we sat and then there's the temptation, right? We just sit in my seat, because hopefully they're not in my seat. No, he wasn't going to say that. <laughs> are people obstacles, or are people here with opportunities to serve the gospel? He said, you know, we could have just simply sat there, had the worship service, gotten up and left without saying anything. They probably wouldn't have thought it was weird. But he's like, I realize maybe God wants us to talk to them. So we deliberately sat close to them, and as soon as the service was over, we just said, hi, I'm so-and-so. Who are you? Welcome. I'm like, that's awesome. It's just being a temple and seeing people. How can I help you connect with God? On Thursday, I was in the hospital visiting somebody who's part of our church family that I'd found out was in the hospital. By the time I got there to connect and, and eventually her husband came in and was able to talk with them for a little while, I realized several other members of our church in their small group had already been there before I even knew this person was in the hospital. They'd already been there, already offered meals, childcare, just t- how can we help take care of you while you're getting through this little illness? I'm blown away at you guys. That's being, I didn't even know what was happening. Praise God that's being the temple. At almost the exact same time, uh, just a couple hours earlier, there was a funeral clear on the other side of town. Some members of our church tragically lost a family member just recently. It's a lot of grief. I wasn't able to get over there in part because I was in other places. And I'm hearing about it afterwards. And I'm hearing about the number of us, many people in their small group, who made the trek across town midday on a weekday to stand and grieve with those who were grieving. And it literally choked me up. I'm like, that's being the church. I'm just gonna make space in my life to rejoice when you rejoice and weep when you weep because that's what we do together. And then lastly, yesterday I'm talking with a couple of brothers about some people who have been in our church and they're asking big questions about who God is. And so many different people in our church over time have made space and invited um, people like this over for lunch and just talked about Jesus and entertained questions and gone out for coffee and realizing like that's, that's what it's, how does somebody come to know Christ unless we make ourselves available, make the invitations, make ourselves available. And so I was encouraging them to continue to reach out as they encouraged me to do the same thing. Guys, I could go on and on and on. Many of us are experiencing this kind of stuff. If that's you, let me just blow wind in your sails because that's expecting God to show up to serve others. And if you've not experienced God like that yet, if you're still in kind of your me and Jesus and it doesn't affect anybody else's mindset, let me encourage you on the basis of what God is saying in his word, there's something much bigger for us. It's creating space for God to show up and not do something just for us but through us. This is so significant because it's about so much more than us. The presence of God among his gathered people is a foretaste of the new creation reality that is yet to come in heaven. And so that leads us to our sixth and final stop on this journey. And here we are going to get back to Ezekiel. So if you've got um, your Bibles in Ezekiel chapter 47, 
Let's flip back there. Here's what I want to do in the time that we have left. I want to help us see connections between the way the book of Ezekiel ends and the way that the entire Bible ends because they are deeply and directly linked together. The last chapters of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, record a vision that the apostle John received of a new Jerusalem. It's a new heavens, new earth. It's it's eternity. And this vision is very similar to Ezekiel's vision, both in the nature of how it played out as well as the content that it contains. Uh, Just quickly, let me give you a couple of examples. If you're in Ezekiel uh, chapter 47, where we are this morning, ah, I'm going to show you one real quick in Ezekiel chapter 40. We'll be back in 47 in a second. We read this last Sunday. The beginning of Ezekiel's temple vision, the angel who is describing this to him said, uh, Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 4, son of man, sorry, back up, verse 3, when he brought me here, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze. He had a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. If you were here last week, I told you to remember that detail because it was going to become important this week. Hope you did, even if you didn't, here's why it's important. <laughs> John gets, or Ezekiel gets this vision of this temple and this angel's got this big measuring stick and he runs all over the temple and he measures the walls and the buildings and that's how John gets all the dimensions of the things. Okay, weird, interesting. Now when you keep that in mind, and I'll just read this to you, if you flip to the very last chapters of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21 verse 15, John gets a vision of a new Jerusalem and it says, one who spoke with me had a measuring rod. Hmm of gold, and he me- to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And then John goes on and on describing some of the dimensions of the city. Where is this idea coming from? Ezekiel. The only two places in the Bible where an angel shows up and measures out a whole city and a whole temple and all this kind of stuff. The details are very similar. Just one more if you are in Ezekiel 47 and 48. That's where we're going to focus the remainder of our time. In fact, let me point out the last verses of the book. Ezekiel chapter 48, verse 30. Just one more detail of several that connect to Revelation. Describing the city in which the temple of Ezekiel's vision sits, uh, Ezekiel says, these shall be the exits of the city. On the north side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, that's about a foot and a half if you're interested, um, three gates, the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, and the gate of Levi, the gates of the city being named after the tribes of Israel. And then he goes on and describes how there's four walls, each with three gates in it. So there's 12 gates, and each gate is named after one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, interesting. Might not seem like a significant detail until you get to the very end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21, verse 12, where the apostle John is describing this new Jerusalem he sees in a vision, and he notes it had a great high wall with 12 gates. Look at that. And the gates were at, 12, uh, at the gates were 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. I, I could go on and on if we had the time to point out these little tidbits and details. Here's the point we're trying to make. The vision that John receives at the end of Revelation is the final culminating fulfillment of Ezekiel's temple vision at the end of the book of Ezekiel. So when we ask, as we did at the beginning of this uh, sermon, like maybe the best way to understand Ezekiel's temple vision and how that relates to us today because we don't have temples and all that kind of stuff is to look at what does the Bible do with Ezekiel's temple vision. The Bible builds its entire final statement on this vision and that means something very powerful for you and me. What does it mean? It means that the new heavens and the new earth is the final hope of God's people. And here we're going to land in chapter 47 of Ezekiel. This was read for us earlier in our 
service. As the vision of the temple closes, he's described the temple complex that he saw, and then he notes something really interesting in verse one. He says, he, that is this angelic uh, kind of tour guide, brings me back up to the door of the temple. So he's standing in front of the front door of this temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, and it was flowing down below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Now, this is kind of interesting. The the closer look he takes at this temple that he's seeing in a vision, he noticed um, there's water like trickling out from under the front door. I don't know about you, but when water comes out from under a door, that is not a good thing. And it's running down the steps of the temple and going across the courtyard. All right, so one of two things is going on here. God has built this wonderful, glorious temple in this vision, and he is either a lousy plumber because the sinks are already leaking, right? He needs to talk to his subcontractor plumber because <laughs> this didn't work out very well. God's either got a problem and there's an, a, a flaw in the temple or something else is going on here. Not surprisingly, option number two is what turns out to be the case as you continue to read. They start following this little rivulet of water and it actually goes out the city and then down the hill and into the valley that's just outside Jerusalem. And as he's going, verse 3, the man measured a thousand cubits and he led me through the water and suddenly it was ankle deep. This is no longer a little trickle. It's becoming bigger. It's like a creek. Again, he measured a thousand. He led me through and it was knee deep. And again, they went further and he led me through and it was waist deep. This is now a real river we're talking about. And finally, verse 5, he measured another thousand and it was a river I could not pass through for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be crossed. Remember, this is a vision. It's an image. God is saying water is coming from the temple. It's getting bigger and bigger, and it is roaring like the mighty Columbia River now. And then look at where it goes in verses 7 and 8. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river many trees on the one side and the other. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region that goes down to the Arabah and enters the sea, that is, the Dead Sea. Um, If you're not super familiar with the geography of um, Palestine, basically, in the mindset of Israelites in Ezekiel's day, um, this was like the most desolate region anywhere. The, the word Arabah means a desolate place, and that's what they named this area, okay? You can't really grow food there. It's really dry. It's parched, and in the bottom of this basin, which is actually um, a really, really low point, uh, there is what's known as the Dead Sea. Dead partly because all the water runs into it. Nothing runs out of it, but also dead because since all the water runs into it, it is incredibly salty. It never gets fresh water kind of cleansing it out. Even to this day, the Dead Sea um, in the Middle East is the saltiest, if not one of the saltiest bodies of water on the planet. I looked it up this week. They say it has anywhere from nine to ten times the amount of salt in it that the ocean does. Full of minerals, full of salt. No normal fish and aquatic life can ever survive there. And that's why it was, again, it was dead. Like, you can't fish there. You can't catch fish. You can't grow food. It was, it's a picture of this desolate place. It's a wilderness. And in Ezekiel's vision, this fresh water flowing from God's temple flows down, becomes a river, pours into the sea, and then look what happens, verse, the end of verse 8. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. Verse 10, fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Eneglaim, and it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. The one landlocked lake, or sea as they called it, that never produces life is going to be teeming with fish. It's going to be full of life, and now there's trees everywhere in the place where trees wouldn't grow. The language is, carries the echoes of Genesis chapter 1 all throughout this vision. This is a whole new creation. 
wherein originally God took the earth that was formless and void, it was barren, and he created seas and lakes and rivers and fresh water, and he created birds that live in the air and fish to live in the sea and the fruit and trees to grow fruit, and that the land became full of life. That kind of creation act is happening here in Ezekiel's vision. And one last stop in verse 12. The, on the banks of this river, both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail, because they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and please mark these words, their leaves for healing. Let me read you one more passage from the book of Revelation. The last chapter of the Bible. Chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. The angel showed me the river of the water of life. This actually chokes me up. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Where is this imagery coming from? A bright river flowing from God's presence. Do you see the connections? They get even more pronounced. It flows through the middle of the street of the city and on either sides of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. It's really stunning to see the cohesiveness and the sweep of the Bible's message. This all connects back to Ezekiel's temple vision. The book of Revelation and its vision of heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, is the final ultimate fulfillment of what God promised through Ezekiel he was going to do. In other words, one day we're going to be in heaven with him and that's when all the promises made to Ezekiel will be fulfilled. The river, the tree, the leaves, they all connect back to Ezekiel. But notice there are some differences. The tree here in Revelation is singular and it actually has a name. It's called the tree of life. Now if you know your Bible, you've heard that before. But only once clear back in Genesis. There was the tree of life from which mankind's presence was cut off. You remember last week, that's where our journey started. And after that point, you never hear anything in the entire Bible about the tree of life again. That whole image of being the place where God's presence is and where life can be had eternally just disappears until it reappears in the very last chapter of the Bible. And John says, you know what? Those trees and all that fruit and all that healing that Ezekiel saw in his vision, that's going back to the garden. In other words, it's a picture of an entirely new creation act of God where there's wholeness and healing because God is there. Because God is there. All of this centers on the presence of God. Last verse I'll read out of Revelation 21. I think I said the previous one was the last. I lied. Please forgive me. Last verse uh, to read here, Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. I saw no temple in the city. There's our temple again. <laughs> it just keeps coming up, doesn't it? Except now it comes up and it's conspicuous for its absence. It comes up because it doesn't come up. <laughs> it comes up in the text because it doesn't come up in the vision. There's no temple here. And then he says something really interesting. The last twist and turn to this temple imagery. I saw no temple there, he says, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now this is kind of crazy. The temple is the place where God's presence is. And he just said, God's presence is with God. Duh. But no, no, no. You, you see what's going on here. The new heavens, the new earth, heaven, it doesn't need a temple because God is there. 
back to our key question. Where is the presence of God when the Bible ends? It is right there on the earth with man, unfiltered, perfectly joyful, just like it was back in Eden. What are we supposed to do with this? Ezekiel was told to set his heart on the vision of a future return of God to a temple. Back in Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 4, right when this temple vision started, the preamble, the angel said, all right, I want you to pay attention to this. I want you to tell your fellow Israelites what I'm about to show you. But then he said, set your heart on what I'm about to show you. Don't just understand it. Set your heart on it. Put your hope in it. Remember, we've said several times throughout the series, this was a dark time in Ezekiel's day for God's people. His presence had abandoned the temple. They had no hope. There was zero hope that God was going to fix anything in their lifetimes. They were looking forward to a life of separation from their homeland, of toil, and of misery. It's like having cancer, and somebody tells you it absolutely cannot be cured. That's where they were at. It's a hopeless and desperate place. And God's response to that is not some promise that he's just going to give them comfort and security now. He says, set your heart on this vision. One day, it is all going to be made right. He gives them a promise. Oh, how we rail against God. Demanding rescue now. We're Americans. We shouldn't have to suffer. It's not right. No, no, it's not. But God says, I will fix it. But I will fix it when I return. How we experience epic meltdown when things are hard now. And how we crave heaven now because you see, for a consumer Christian, Christ alone is not enough. We desperately crave his blessings more than we crave himself. Oh God, if you'd fix my marriage, if you would give me a steady income, if you would cure this disease, if you would help me be reconciled to my loved one, if you would take away the pain, then I would be happy. I'm not interested in you as much as I'm interested in what you can do for me, so says the consumer Christian. But God says, my presence is the greatest gift I can give you, and you have that right now. And one day you're going to see the final fulfillment of my presence where every tear will be wiped away. Set your hearts, he tells us, on that. What this means is that there is real hope. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, the Bible says that we have this, this treasure in jars of clay. It had said earlier, we've got this hope of Christ, but our bodies are messed up, our lives are broken, and it's hard. And so in verses 16 to 18, he says, but we experience a renewal Every day, even though our outer man, in the Bible's language, is wasting away, our inner man is renewed every day. Like there's hope, there's life that gets breathed into you at the deepest and most darkest place. And we're like, hey, give me some of that. (laughs) Where do I get that? He says, I'll tell you exactly where you get it. We set our minds, that's a conscious choice, by the way. We set our minds not on things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Do you see the mindset of a temple-minded Christian? Be a brick for Jesus? What does that mean? (laughs) It means develop a mindset. Being a brick in God's temple means developing a mindset where I choose to focus not on what I'm hoping to receive right here and now because my whole life isn't caught up in having this wonderful family or this entertaining experience or all of this money or comfort or ease because I realize those things are passing away and they could be taken from me in a heartbeat. Instead, I set my hope on the life that is to come which cannot be taken away from me for Paul finishes in 2 Corinthians 4, 18. The things that are seen are temporary. They're going away. They will not last forever. The things that are unseen 
are eternal. C.S. Lewis captured this so beautifully as he ended his seven-volume Chronicles of Narnia series. Referring to the characters, he closes this, the epic seven-volume series with these words. As they're getting ready to enter into heaven, finally, for the first time, he says, all of their life in this world and all of their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has yet read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Oh, that God would help us see everything in this life merely as the cover and the title page of the great story and lift our eyes to hope for the day when his presence will be unfiltered. We get to respond to this in worship. Now, I'd like to actually ask the worship team to come up as we move into a time of responding to God because as we hope in that future day, we live as God's temple now, a gathered people. And what that means is we help one another hope in that day. There are sometimes the hope of heaven just makes me weep with excitement and joy. And there's other times I'm so frustrated with my life because I'm not thinking about, I'm thinking about everything but heaven. I need people to come alongside me and re-remind me of these great truths of scripture. That's what we have an opportunity to do right now. Friends, we're gonna close our service with two songs. The first one sings about the great hope that we ultimately have one day when God will take us back home and how he holds us now as we look forward to that day when there is no weeping. Let's put our hope there. And then our last song is simply going to exalt God for who he is. And it's a, it's a prayer to lift our hands in praise and dependence on him. I'd like to ask us to stand, please. And as a church, let us sing the praises of our God in response to what he has told us. And however he's moved your heart, respond to him this morning in light of his word.